0: Drawing a Dialogue. My name is Kathy G. Johnson.
1: And I'm Remus Jackson.
0: We are cartoonists, scholars, and educators. On Drawing a Dialogue, we put comics into historical and educational contexts.
1: My segment explores the theoretical and historical analyses of our topic.
0: And I talk about our topic through the lens of pedagogy and education with a focus on practical application. I work with K-12 students in schools in addition to alternative educational settings. I have three graphic novels out in addition to self-published works. I have a master's degree in art education.
1: I am a PhD student in the University of Florida's English program. Um, My research focuses on gender, critical prison studies, and museum studies. And I also largely make self-published comics.
0: All right. So here we are, episode 28, and we are going to be talking about public libraries. Uh, how did we come to our topic, Remus?
1: Uh, well, I I pitched this one to you because as I was sort of working on my master's, um, I was i'm talking about like young adult graphic novels and so i was doing a lot of research on that and there's a lot of history between like um i mean part of the reason why young adult graphic novels are where they are now is because of librarians Mm. so i just got really interested in looking a little bit deeper into libraries wow
0: I can't wait to hear more about that. Um it's funny, it's like not being able to see the nose on your face or something. I go to libraries and I do events all the time and we talk about libraries all the time. And it yeah and Remus pitched this and I was like, Wait, we haven't done libraries? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I was like, oh wait, whoa. <laughs> So I'm happy that Remus uh, did that so we could uh, do. I'm so sorry we had overlooked it, but here we are.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, So should I just sort of get started then? I think we're ready to go. All right. So I'm not actually going to talk very much about like contemporary like stuff. I can sort of talk about that later. I think if you want, Kathy, but I, I ended up sort of just looking at, like, the emergence of public libraries as a system and, like, the ALA and stuff like that. Cool. So I'm going to start with in the United States and in Europe, it, the public library sort of emerges in the, um like, 18th, 19th century um more than 19th century and by public library i mean like a space with open fl- layout of shelves that people can just go and walk amongst the shelves and then borrow the books right like it's a- also a lending library um and it's open to the public um mm. prior to that like sort of the precursor to that uh was these ide- was these libraries called subscription libraries um, I have a little bit like I'm gonna I'm just sort of like weaving a couple of sources together. And one of them is this exhibition on library history, um, a history of the US public libraries by the um Digital Public Library of America. So it's a virtual exhibition. And so they talk, they say, uh, quote, <sighs> from their sort of section on the early beginnings. With the rise of non-religious texts and literacy rates in the 1700s, private book clubs among wealthy men evolved into subscription libraries. Subscription or membership libraries were funded by membership fees or donations with collections accessible only to paying members. And sort of like the big example of this that everyone talks about is Ben Franklin's The Library Club. Um, which was founded in 1731. Mm. <laughs> yeah, so this so this That's- sort of paved the way for pub- these were not public; like you couldn't just come, but they were like largely sort of like literate, wealthy white men. Right, would pay in a subscription, and then they could access the collection of books and borrow the books and stuff.
0: That's interesting. So the word library was mm-hmm. originally like a personal library you would have in your home. That was the original use of the word
1: I mean that but we I think like even further back than that because I obviously I'm like sort of starting with public libraries in the U.S. specifically but like um a lot of library history goes back to like ancient Greece Egypt um oh of course the Middle, yeah there's like <laughs> libraries are always around um just not sort of in the model that we think of right
0: right there was like that big one that like burned the yeah the big one that like burned or whatever Alexandria <laughs>
1: <laughs> but um, it, like whatever. <laughs> yeah, it's sort of I think like essentially prior to the eight- the uh 1900s or the 1800s. Sorry, library meant more just like collection of book, <laughs> and then like okay, the idea right, that it was. That's then- what I was thinking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's just a lot. Yeah, <laughs>
0: that
1: all one lived. Right, um. Okay, so I'm gonna switch to um. An article, an essay titled, America's Libraries: Distinguished Past, Difficult Future from 1996. It was written by uh, Warren J. Haas. Um, And again, he's sort of just talking about some history. The transition from subscriber-funded, which is what I just described, um, to tax-based financing of libraries came more than a century later, first in Peterborough, New Hampshire, and then more visibly in Boston in 1854, our first urban public library. The number of libraries grew rapidly and prompted in 1876, the founding of a professional association, which is the ALA, which I'll talk about, um, a professional journal, the first training program for librarianship, and the Dewey Decimal System of Classification. In the year of the American centennial, there were more than uh, 3,500 public, academic, association, and religious libraries in the country, but most had collections of only a few hundred books. Mm. And then he sort of goes on, um, stimulated by the Industrial Revolution that brought... Large quantities of inexpensive paper, high speed printing, and great increase in book production, supported by a growing and aspiring population, and favored by a new level of purposeful philanthropy, the library structure of the country took a great step forward. Um, and he gives sort of a list of things. This is in the later uh, 1800s. So like 1896, the Library of Congress um, moves to the Thomas Jefferson Building. And then in 1897, the Library of Congress wrote to diplomatic personnel abroad requesting that they see he can send to the library all publications that would add to the sum of human knowledge and at the same time uh in the 1890s we've got the new york public library being built the new boston public library building was opened in 1890 so like what's that about 40 years after it was opened and that there it featured um open shelves and unimpeded access to books so that was a big thing was the shift from like Mm. The closed stack system where the libra- like the librarian was the only one who could access the stacks right. to the idea of like open floor pan, open shelves, people could just go walk in the shelves.
0: The- I'm actually going to be talking about the Boston Public Library too. It's still going. Yeah, out. Boston.
1: Big yeah, one. big one. Um, and then most notable quote, most notably Andrew Carnegie by a single action transformed the public library scene. Carnegie provided funds to 1,412 communities to build 1,679 library buildings with the provision that adequate operating funds be provided by those communities. Um, The events, and then this is, so he says, as a sort of a summary, the events of these 20 years of growth um, from 1890 to 1910 enabled libraries to cope with the growth of the decades to come and, importantly, singled broad-based public support, reinforced library dedication to open access information to all, established the principles of standardization for the basic bibliographic structure, expanded collecting objectives, and extended the role of librarians from caretaker to provider of information services." Yeah, so that's cool. that was a big chunk of information, but essentially, um, what I think is really in- <laughs> what I think is really interesting <laughs> is both one the fact that um, that the new model of libraries sort of emerges out of like the industrial revolution and like mass produced books, which I mean like makes sense if you think about it, right? Like, like there's a lot of books now, right? Books aren't these like rare expensive things in the same way that they used to be so more people had access to reading Mm -hmm. and also more libraries could have the same copy of the same book because there's a mass production and then also the shift from like librarians as basically archivists to service providers right Mm -hmm. which is like a big part of like this time period um which haas mentions philanthropy and like philanthropy was like a really big model in this time period right The idea that essentially, like, sort of the the wealthy class supported causes for the common good. Um, So there's, like, interesting Mm. stuff there. So to keep talking about that, this is from um, an article by Kenneth E. Carpenter called A Library Historian Looks at Librarianship um, that was published in 1996, so the same year as the previous article. Um, the ideology behind um, the formation of the new kind of library, the public finance library, also led to a service orientation. Public libraries were to be seen variously as a means of elevating the lower class through good reading and providing sources of information that would help the working man in his trade, of keeping peace between the classes, of inculcating democratic values in immigrants, of promoting civic virtue and the like. Such are important reasons for libraries to exist, sufficiently so that those responsible for the libraries could see themselves to be missionaries with a special calling." So this is a really, I, I don't think I, I may have pulled like a little bit more from it, um, but yeah. I, I was really interested in how Carpenter sort of talked about how librarians saw themselves yeah, um and sort of like the ethos of being a librarian it, and it had it at least like his argument is that it was very like about like sort of being a uh like a steward for p- the public like promoting good reading teaching people to be good citizens um providing like service um in like a really specific way which is like super interesting i think <laughs>
0: Hmm. Yeah, and I I really feel like that um that really leads into what my segment is going to be about. Like, yeah, for I, sure. I feel like that's still very true, right? Service for the yeah. public.
1: So I mentioned the A.L.A. a couple times, so um I'm going to talk about that a little bit. So the A.L.A. stands for the American Library Association. It is the oldest and largest library association in the world. It was um chartered in. 1876 at the Centennial Exposition in Philadelphia, which was, like, the big, um, America's World Fair, um, it, a lot, like, mm-hmm. it had, like, a lot, I, I it's, like, interesting, because that was also where, like, the Philadelphia Museum of Art was founded and stuff, so anyway, um, mm. <laughs> it's, like, a very interesting exposition, um, yeah. but- the ALA has, like, their history, like, has a section dedicated to their history. And so they just note that the uh, during the Centennial Exposition, 103 librarians, 90 men and 13 women, responded to a call for a, quote, convention of libraries to be held October 4th to the 6th. Um, at the end of the meeting, they essentially passed around a register for everyone to sign to become charter members of the ALA. Um, so October 6th. 1876 is the birthday of the American Library Association.
0: Wow. (laughs) I think it's
1: cute. (laughs) Um, And I'm going to – like the ALA, essentially, they do a lot. I'm going to talk a little bit about that, but for a little more context also on sort of like the social stuff that was happening, this is, again, from that public – Digital Public Library of America exhibition. Quote, men from New England's yeah. elite families were the predominant players in early U.S. library movements. These men viewed libraries like librarians, like missionaries, bringing civilization and reform to the masses through educational op- opportunity. So I talked about that.
0: Which sounds oddly, like, colonial. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah, super does, right? <laughs> no, I, I mean, like, that's why this is so interesting to me, because it's very similar to um, early museum function. Right.
0: Yeah, it sounds a lot like our our episode, just episode twenty six. Like the the serving of the creation of the museums is to help the lower classes understand what
1: is important, <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> because the things yeah. that they care about
0: are not important.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, many were well connected graduates of New England colleges, and some had departed other careers in law and ministry to begin second careers as librarians. Um, So this is from that same exhibition. Along with these men, a number of women from the elite classes volunteered at librarians, particularly for work with children. It was not until after 1900 that women would dominate the operational work of libraries, and longer still until they would have full administrative power and responsibility.
0: Oh, they volunteered. Yeah, they they were volunteers.
1: Um, The, the, like, sort of service, (laughs) it's, like, very interesting. But um, this particular gendered history underpins the founding of the ALA. So despite... uh, and it sort of talks about the fact that there was 90 men and 13 women, right? So much fewer women.
0: I mean, honestly, when when I first heard that, I'm guessing they're all white.
1: Oh, um, yeah. But I was like really impressed that there were 13 women to be honest. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I didn't I didn't end up talking about this, but there is some interesting like Dewey, the who is the person who like he was a librarian. I was gonna say. Yeah, Dewey, who was a librarian at Amherst, yeah. right? He was the one who actually started, like, I think, either the first or one of the very earliest library schools, and he specifically allowed women to join the class, like, to join the school. But, like, it wasn't because of a belief that, like, women were equal, basically. It was because that Dewey believed – that library workers should be subordinate to, like, other intellectual pursuits. And he thought that, like, if women were in, if women were part of the field, like, women could be part of the field because it was not meant to be, like, a high-class job, basically.
0: Yeah, and I was gonna say, a lot of libraries aren't into the Dewey Decimal system, really, because it has, it had, like, racial bias, which they tried to fix in the 30s. But the system itself uh, is... Racist. So yeah. I think a lot of libraries are actually moving away from the Dewey Decimal System. Oh, that's really interesting.
1: Yeah. Um, anyway, so the ALA elected their first uh, female president in 1911. <laughs> oh, whoa. <laughs> Theresa Elmendorf was her name. Sorry. Theresa Elmendorf. <laughs> it's a good name. <laughs> it's a good name and also sounds very elite. Oh, yeah. <laughs> also. It is it's like a, a good RPG name. Yeah. So like I said, that Kenneth Carpenter article, um, also looks at gender and like and like he's like very interesting in the way he analyses it. So he talks about he's sort of responding to, I guess, what he perceives as a myth's characterization of like the idea that librarianship became seen as a lesser job after women joined the field in mass. Mm. So sort of responding to that he writes There was not a golden age of male librarianship that the entry of women brought to an end. For men, though, the entry of women brought about a shinier, even if not golden era, since it created a two-tiered structure in libraries, an elite comprised of males and their female subordinates. When women entered the low-status occupation of librarianship, they did so at the lowest level. They were not even heads of small libraries, positions in which there is inevitably some degree of independence. The first women employees of libraries were hired to do low-level work in institutions by men. Um, So, for instance, like uh, the Boston Public Library employed women because they had a bunch of – they needed labor at harbor to do copy-off list of books, basically – And they could just hire women for cheap to do that, because it was like just like a low-level kind of data entry job. So, quote, the entry of significant numbers of women into librarianship to do the low-level work of the institution, work that was particularly susceptible to management, virtually required a hierarchical library organization given the 19th century mentality, and the gender difference must have contributed to the great gap between the Mm. library assistants and senior management, or the boss. Yeah. So I just think that's like some interesting stuff about how like women were always present but like in a way where they were like either subordinate to men or were being deliberately used to keep the entire field (laughs) from being too elites yeah that's really interesting yeah i had to talk a little bit the ala services and also a little bit about like the racial like around integration and stuff like that cool i love that yeah so i think i'm just gonna go in the order i put it down on this document and we're gonna hope that it makes sense Cool. So this is from that Digital Public uh, Library of America exhibition again, talking about library services. Um, quote, a cornerstone of the ALA's core values of librarianship is its emphasis on social responsibility and libraries, cri- libraries' critical role of serving the public. So that, again, goes back to that idea of, like, providing service, the almost missionary-like uh, stuff. Public libraries' attention to programming in the form of classes, discussion groups, and community events helps put those goals in practices. And then they sort of talk a little bit about the racial context Mm. around that. Um, Though some libraries, like other public spaces in the United States, have historically supported racial segregation, services have generally been available for patrons across class and gender lines. Moreover, public libraries remain some of the only true free public spaces where local residents can meet outside of home and work. And then they say, so with renewed focus in the 1950s, U.S. public libraries begin extending their core services to include community programming. But, like, that exhibition sort of gestured towards libraries have supported, especially in the South, right, supported segregation. Yeah. And so I have an article actually from the ALA's blog, um, which is hosted by the University of Illinois at Urbana's, like, archive. Mm. So this is Denise Raymond, um, Action, Not Reaction, Integrating the Library Profession. So to quote her, uh, Black librarians have been active in American librarianship since the start of the library movement in the 19th century. The first black librarian to graduate from an accredited library school was Edward Christopher Williams in 1900 from the New York State Library School, completing the normally two-year graduate program in one year. Many others would follow, with a total of 180 accredited black librarians listed in a directory covering graduates from 1900 to 1936. Um, While many library schools in the North did accept Black students, in the South there was only the library school of the Hampton Institute, run from 1925 through 1939. The Hampton Institute graduated 183 librarians during its existence. When the Hampton Institute Library School closed in 1939, it for a time left Southern Black librarians with only paraprofessional or summer term programs black students who attended majority white schools in the north also had a difficult time due to less formalized racial inequality after the 1936 annual conference in Richmond Virginia in which black librarians were barred from many sessions of the conference including any session involving eating due to segregation laws the ala stipulated that future conferences would be held only in areas where meeting spaces could be obtained quote with proper regard for its own self-respect and that of its members mm. and that didn't land like, That didn't specifically outright say, like, no, this, no, nowhere in the South. But the ALA did not return to the South until 1956 when it could obtain non segregated space in Miami Beach, Florida. Um, However, in the pre civil rights era, black librarians attending ALA conferences still struggled to find lodging, either having to stay with friends or relatives or at small hotels and YMCAs. Mm -hmm. Um, following a proposal at the 1952 meeting, in 1954, the ALA also barred states from having two separate state chapters with the ALA in an effort to integrate state library associations that had segregated chapters for black librarians, including Florida, North Carolina, and South Carolina.
0: I just wanted to note, 1954 is also when Brown versus the Board of Education uh, was
1: passed. Yeah. Yeah. Very good note. (laughs) Um. (laughs)
0: Well, it's just like, you know, the (laughs) efforts for integration. Yeah. Yeah, so this
1: would be, like, peak integration, like, efforts. Um, The Georgia Library Association and the Alabama Library Association would not comply and lost status. In 1962, further anti-segregation sanctions for state chapters were passed, and the Louisiana Library Association and the Mississippi Library Association also lost ALA status rather than comply.
0: Oh, wow. Jeez.
1: I know some of them are back. (laughs) Um, I think all of them are back, but I didn't, like, (laughs) double-check so i don't want to say really that interesting um, yeah
0: who knows
1: but yeah no it is especially that the southern states would rather just not be part of the ala right then
0: mm. i mean I, i'm just wondering if they have joined again i guess that's something we should follow up with
1: i know that the mississippi library association did because this article talks about how um the first black president of the ala was really mad that they like honored the mississippi library association at some at, at some point oh. in recent history um so um i'm sure i'm sure that's pretty easy to look up if they come back in um i just didn't my apologies oh no so the last thing i think i'm gonna say um so i wanted to read like from the 1879 charter what the like key um purposes of the ala were And, like, Mm -hmm. compared to, like, now, and, like, because I think that's, like, interesting. Mm -hmm. In the original charter, they wrote um, that the ALA was founded for the purpose of promoting the library interests of the country throughout the world by exchanging views, reaching conclusions, and inducing cooperation in all departments – of bibliothecal science and economy by disposing the public mind to the founding and improving of libraries and by cultivating goodwill among its own members so very focused on mm. more on like building the library right and i do like right. disposing the public mind to the founding and improving of libraries <laughs> um expose expose so then and i'm now i'm gonna skip way ahead in 1998 the ala council voted commitment to five key action areas diversity equity of access education and continuous learning intellectual freedom and 21st century literacy um this was then expanded into the eight key areas that they still list on their website as their priority um Mm. so advocacy for the profession diversity education and lifelong learning, equitable access to education and library services, intellectual freedom, literacy, organizational excellence, and transforming libraries. And I just think that's cool. like an interesting, the way that they sort of got more specific in certain ones. And like, I don't know. It's interesting to me. Yeah.
0: yeah. I love that. I, I love that the, f- the final one is to transform themselves. I think that's really cool.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Like acknowledging that services for the community always need to be transforming. I really like that.
1: Yeah. No, I mean, I like, I like the ALA, <laughs> you know, I think. Um, yeah. They're doing I, good yeah. work. <laughs> Absolutely. So.
0: Yeah. In fact, thank you so much. Uh, Remus for your segment I'm going to be continuing mostly With my information which is also Mostly stemming from the ALA are we ready to go? Yeah, I'm ready, ready to go. All right. So so my education segment, I decided to kind of open it up this time um, to be more about full community engagement. Mm. Um, I think my research focus on education is genuinely kind of a more of a focus on getting to know communities through the families of children that we teach. Um, education is always more than the individual child and always has been. Mm-hmm. So this time I really decided to open it up and really talking about the, all that programming that. Uh, Remus alluded to what is it that libraries do other than just like lend out books I mean they've always been more than that so the first article is um, from the Harvard Family Research Project in collaboration with the Public Library Association which I believe is going to be different than the ALA um, Mm -hmm. the PLA
1: yeah that's different
0: yeah but this is from uh, 2016 Um, so it's titled Public Libraries a Vital Space for Family Engagement it's by Lopez Caspi and McWilliams And it sort of talks about why libraries should support the whole family and not just be for children. Mm. To quote, Children and youth learn in countless ways, everywhere, anytime. And some of the most powerful levers of children's learning from the early childhood years through adolescence is families. Children exhibit healthy development and academic success when families foster warm and nurturing parent-child relationships, take responsibility for children's learning, support children's interests and curiosity, and encourage children to focus on effort and learn from failure. Libraries are important learning spaces and poised to engage families more meaningfully across children's development. The rich digital and hands-on resource libraries offer, especially when guided by librarians, can prompt families to steer children's learning, pose questions, make connections, exchange information, and instill in children not only a love of learning, but also the skills for learning that last a lifetime. Even more, libraries embrace the entire family, from infants to toddlers to teens to grandparents, making it a space that is not limited to just one age group, but rather a place that spans generations. This is like unlike schools, right? Schools are just for a certain age group. This is for everyone. Um, Then this article goes on to talk about anywhere education, including home, libraries, and after-school programs. Mm Mm-hmm. And to quote again, engaging families in anywhere, anytime learning is critical for children's academic and social development. But there is also a matter of equity. Families with high incomes spend nearly seven times more money on out of school enrichment activities, such as music lessons, summer camps and travel than families from low income homes. The opportunities for success for low income children are diminished. Libraries are free, trusted, safe, and welcoming spaces in virtually every community that can help counterbalance these inequities. Mm. Yeah, so talking about that is, it is really important, right? Yeah. There's a lot that shows that, um, so like uh, families with higher incomes are able to give children opportunities for learning. That other families from low-income homes aren't necessarily able to, uh, there's a gatekeeping, right? Right. And it's a financial gatekeeping for Mm -hmm. that kind of experience. So libraries are helping um, remove that. And part of that is um, after-school programming. Yeah, I'm going to link some after-school programs. There's like a huge website from YALSA, which I'll have to, it's Young Adult Library Services Association. Yes, Young uh, Adult Library Services Association. So there's a after-school.
1: Um, I focused a lot on YALSA for my.
0: Yeah. So there's an after-school program website, so you can see all sorts of after-school programming there. Yeah. Um. But so my next link. See, I'm just going to note one of the wonderful things about doing the research for this is that we're doing least research on libraries. They are documenting and archiving. <laughs> everything all the time. I know, it's It's so easy. It's just like,
1: here's a link to the ALA. That's all you need. (laughs) It'll tell you everything. Yeah.
0: So, like, I'm, like, gonna talk about after-school programming, and here's a website with, like, a bunch of after-school programming if you want to go do it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So, this next article is titled, Civic Spaces, Retooling Public Libraries to Attract and Engage Teens After School. Mm. Um, It is by Molman and Tillinger, and it's from 2004. And so this article starts out by saying the National Child Care Survey uh, says approximately 7 million children, I'm guessing in the United States, Mm -hmm. are spending some amount of time each day in self-care, meaning that there's 7 million children at some point during the day that they are on their own without um, an an adult present. Mm. And if you include adolescents, the number without care after school can approach 15 million, right? There's a lot of children and adolescents in the United States that spend some time without uh, adult presence. Okay, And so this article sort of highlights the gaps in class and opportunity, right? So after school programs hold great potential to equip all youth with the skills and attitudes necessary for participation in an increasingly complex society. Public libraries represent community spaces in which teens who seek to cultivate their passions and interests can explore, create, and make progress in a low stakes environment. Libraries can be venues in which teens define themselves at their own pace and in personally meaningful ways. Communities that want to help support youth must understand the powerful role civic institutions such as libraries can play during the out-of-school hours. So this article is about trying to attract teens to library spaces, right? Oh, okay. I mean, they sort of go into why you wouldn't want a teenager or a child to be without adult supervision. (laughs) Um, Right. And, you know, I find some of it uh, to be questionable and untrusting of Mm. children and teens. But also, we do want kids to be safe, and we also want them to feel welcome in spaces like libraries. So I think the, it feels like the heart is where it should be, even if I might disagree with the idea that youth out by themselves is really horrible. <laughs> yeah, that is like a, um, <laughs> I think it's okay if,
1: it's, you know, it's not always the worst.
0: Yeah, I mean, it depends on if they're in a safe space. Yeah, 100%. Um, So, attracting uh, teenagers to your library. Adolescents tend not to be inclined toward rigidly structured programs, Mm -hmm. right? Instead, they gravitate toward programs that provide motivating and meaningful activities that respect their need for positive relationships, flexibility, and choices. Mm. I really like this a lot, right? Yeah, Giving teenagers... And it's almost like like what we were just talking about, where like giving teenagers a space where their voice is heard. It's flexible to them because they don't, they want to be finding their independence. Right. And so how can you create a unstructured independent space in a library with like all sorts of like technology and things that teens do want. They do want to hang out with each other. Right.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Um, and one note that I really liked is that one of the points that teenagers really wanted from libraries in sort of a survey um was that they wanted librarians who work who like to work with youth and make teens feel wanted <laughs> because sometimes it feels like teens are like can be too loud mm. or they can like make a space dirty and they just feel like they aren't wanted which i feel like you know i think that can come off when an adult isn't being mindful right you have to be mindful of what who adolescents are and then so this article also really goes into what the boston public library is doing for adolescents um so uh, there's like a long list um they want a cool space that are just for teens like it's like a dedicated teen space i don't know if you've ever been in a public library with like a teen room um (laughs) i i don't know that i have actually really i always end up teaching my workshops in the teen room (laughs)
1: definitely like definitely like young adult rooms that are supposed to be like kids and teens but i don't know if i've seen a dedicated like the one down my street does cool and it's
0: almost like if you create their own room then they can be loud in it without getting shushed you know right yeah um so there's like some like very basic benefits to it (laughs) i'm like so pro letting kids be
1: loud (laughs) like so
0: (laughs) i know absolutely yeah But, you know, if a library also wants to be serving people who are trying to, uh, like, read or study or write something, you know, um, finding that balance might be giving teens a cool room. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And then uh, it also talks about embedding youth voice in the governance and program development, creating a teen advisory board. Mm. So giving the youth a voice in what kind of programming they want. That clearly makes sense. Offering teen employment, like having teens help maybe tutor younger students, helping senior citizens learn how to use a computer. There's lo- also, like, there's lots of opportunities to employ teens in the library because, you know, they want money, right? Yeah. Um, Enhance and expand technology resources because, honestly, part of the achievement gap is that teenagers whose families have more money are able to purchase technology like recent Mm -hmm. technology and honestly that is often used in schools and colleges Mm -hmm. and so like um that is something that a library can offer um that actually that can help uh adolescents when they're growing and trying to apply to colleges right they have this experience with what google docs is with what all these tech is Mm -hmm. because that is honestly that's so much of
1: what our future is and it can be a gatekeeper it's super. No, it super. Is and I think like I know that there's even some libraries that um can check out things like laptops um for like kids. And yeah, folks absolutely. Who don't have access to? Because I've had students that like didn't have a computer and like they just you're just sort of expected to have one when you're in college, but like not everyone can afford a personal laptop, right? Like. Hmm. And so
0: that's a, that's a big part of what a library can offer adolescents. Yeah. Um and also I've heard of libraries checking out switches and PlayStation's yeah. so <laughs> <laughs> Um and then uh collaborative community programming mm-hmm. working with the community which I'm going to talk more about and then also um the last one on this list of things that you can do to support a teen patronage is bolster learning opportunities and college and career resources mm. so something i have been hearing more and more is about the hidden knowledge that is required for applying to colleges like mm-hmm. things like recommendation letters what early application dates are there's a lot of things that that is that hidden knowledge that is part of some um experiences because parents and grandparents went to college but if you don't have that family experience you don't know this right and so having like a college application programming or something like that within your libraries is like a really huge opportunity Mm -hmm. and also to explore other sort of uh, job other sort of opportunities that aren't necessary like those post high school opportunities that aren't necessarily just college. So I wanted to kind of move on to um oh by the way I I have like a really big background in doing library after school comic making workshops I've done like it a lot
1: yeah
0: it's really fun <laughs> it's really fun to get to know kids outside of the classroom and the school because it really is like a huge difference right mm-hmm. is the kids want to be there they've chosen to be there there's like so much more empowerment to that um. So honestly, the the more funding that schools that libraries get to have more outside people come in and t- do workshops and stuff, well, the better. That's yeah, really awesome. For sure. So I sort of wanted to move in to this next segment, which is also continuing uh the different programming for different uh patrons, and this is from we're going back to the ALLA website and so i wanted to talk about another segment of the population that libraries serve um which intersects with youth and adolescents um which is the poor and or homeless library patrons Mm -hmm. um later on this page talks more about using inclusive language such as patrons experiencing homelessness right Mm -hmm. like the word homeless shouldn't be an identifying noun for a person right so people are experiencing poverty or homelessness constitute a significant portion of users in many libraries today, and this population provides libraries with an important opportunity to change lives. As the numbers of poor children, adults and families in America rises, so does the urgent need for libraries to effectively respond to their needs. Access to library and information services, resources, services and technologies is essential for all people, especially the economically disadvantaged who may experience isolation, discrimination and prejudice or barriers to education, employment and housing. Mm -hmm. And, yeah, th- we do. We are in a housing crisis mm-hmm. in uh, in the United States today. I don't know if homelessness is necessarily on the rise, but it is a problem. There's a lot of people who are experiencing homelessness mm-hmm. in the United States, and having a free public space such as a library is really important. And I, so the ALA has within their manual very specific policies uh, for working f- with patrons who are experiencing this Mm -hmm. um which i think is just wonderful right i think it's really important so the american library association promotes equal access to information for all persons and recognizes the need to respond to people experiencing poverty which include people experiencing homelessness in the united states therefore it is crucial that libraries recognize their role in supporting these communities so they may participate fully in a democratic society by utilizing a wide variety of available services and resources and strategies. Concrete programs of training and development are needed to to prepare library staff to identify needs and deliver relevant services to people experiencing poverty. In addition, the American Library Association's Uh, should be strengthened to support low-income neighborhoods and people experiencing poverty through programs, services, and resources. So um, they have all these policy objectives. There's a list of 20 objectives, but I just pulled a few examples. Um, And, you know, these are very specific within their policy supporting of these people. And I think um, I'm sort of emphasizing the fact that it's in their policy very specifically because... You know, it's key to being an inclusive organization to actually create these words that you can then constantly return to and stand by, right? Yeah. So uh, some of the objectives are promoting the removal of barriers to library and information services, particularly fees and overdue charges. Promoting the publication, production, purchase, and readily accessibility of print and non-print materials that focus directly on the issues of poverty, that engage people respectfully, and are practical and responsive to low-income library users and their needs. So, like having materials possibly for local communities or local organizations that can help, like, there's a lot of um, making sure that is accessible. Um, acknowledging economic equity and funding by promoting the incorporation of program services and resources for people experiencing poverty, into regular budgets in all types of libraries, regardless of the availability of soft money, like private or federal grants, to support these programs. And what this is saying is that making sure that these services always remain in the budget, whether Mm. there is a lot of money allocated to it or not, Mm -hmm. never removing it from your budget. I love that.
1: Yeah, that's really important.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Because honestly, you know, sometimes uh, issues become a hot button issue and then it becomes like oh we should do this and then when it's no longer a hot button issue it can it can sort of you don't get that private funding right, right? yeah but i th- i really like that they're saying this is all this should always be present whether that we have private funding for it or not mhm and then promoting a networking between libraries and other agencies which i'm going to get into more about like reaching out to other agencies not trying to do everything on your own as a library mm-hmm. acknowledging the disproportionate rate in which poverty affects underserved populations, including but not limited to women, people of color LGBTQ people, non-native English speakers, formerly incarcerated people, and people with disabilities like recognizing that this is um, a disproportionate weight in which poverty affects these populations, right? And figuring out how to serve those populations. And then uh, encouraging parity of uh, public services, hours, resources, and facilities between affluent and low-income library neighborhoods, making sure that there's equity n- no matter what neighborhood you're in. Mm. Um, and I really like that, like the, the hours, right? Yeah. The hours that you're open. That's really important, too. Promoting an attractive and inviting environments in all libraries, including low-income neighborhoods, making sure they're like comfortable and safe, and promoting uh, publications outreach and marketing in the native language for speakers of other languages in all libraries, including low-income neighborhoods. So those are just a few um, different ways in which. These are different policies that AL uh, has enacted to support uh, people in poverty. So, there's a few more things that I wanted to touch on. We're going to link it all um, in the show notes so you can read more in depth about it. Um, but I sort of wanted to start uh, talking about the sort of more recent controversies in libraries. Um, one of them specifically is the administration of the overdose reversal drug called Narcan. Mm-hmm. So I have a link called "Other Duties as Assigned." Um, it's from January second, twenty nineteen. Frontline librarians on the constant pressure to do more. Um, it's like uh, interviews with six librarians um, who talk about sort of more recent concerns such as drug, uh, such as gun violence, immigration support, rural poverty, and different social work, mm-hmm. and so. There's a librarian who's talking about the administration of this overdose reversal drug. And I just wanted to mention it. So Narcan is um, when someone is overdosing uh, Mm -hmm. from uh, drugs, um, what is happening is that their body is no longer telling them to breathe, Mm -hmm. essentially. Right. So they have taken something that is causing their body to sort of shut down breathing Mm -hmm. and what Narcan does is it tells their body it sends a signal to the brain to breathe right so it's really really important that it's administered uh, very quickly and especially if you are a library that is serving these underserved populations I feel like that kind of thing can be really important and the reason that I know about it is that I have i'm cpr certified i've gone through this kind of training right narcan is really cheap it's really accessible um if you are anywhere near populations that this might be something that you see i would recommend
1: you um get yourself some it okay um i don't know if it's cheap yes it depends on where you are because narcan is super not cheap in florida Uh, um uh yeah so mm-hmm. because that's like a conversation we've had a lot about whether we can start narcan or not and it's like a hundred dollars a dose um
0: yeah so i think there there are different um i'm gonna look into uh finding uh there are uh places where you can get it yeah there's, there's um, organizations that would be great that'd be really helpful <laughs> yeah i'll look into it yes, yes. but I just wanted to touch on that and there's a link to that. There's also a couple of really great interviews with the librarians um, who have stayed open Mm -hmm. during moments of uh, demonstrations during uh, when there's uh, people demonstrating protesting against police brutality. Mm -hmm. So there's an article from the librarian who um, was in Ferguson and the way he kept his library open and his uh, the way he's changed. So it's a year after um, the uh, I'm trying to summarize something and I'm wondering if I should just read it. So one year later, an interview with Ferguson, Missouri library director, Scott Bonner. Um, so this is from August 6, 2015. So August 9th uh, marks one year since police in Ferguson, Missouri shot and killed unarmed teenager Michael Brown. Mm-hmm. With the anniversary looming this Sunday, Ferguson Municipal Public Library director Scott Bonner is hoping for the best while preparing for the worst. Bonner, who has received awards for providing a safe harbor for residents during the Ferguson protests, spoke to us about the past year, th- how the past year changed his library. And something that I really like is taught. He brought in more programming, mm. and one thing he says is first, the community ma- has made it clear that they want an opportunity to share their stories without a media filter. Mm. So, we are working on two programs. The first is Story Corpse for your library, which lets people record a 40 minute conversation with a friend that gets archived in the Library of Congress. We've also in the early stages of creating a teen newspaper. They also talk about STEM and STEAM programming. I just really like, and they also have uh, other f- a few programs that they uh, started in the fall. Um, so they have healing kits, which are backpacks stuffed with, that have a stuffed animal, children's books about healing and information about mental health resources. And patrons can check out those kits. Mm. And he talks about how really important it is to stay connected to your community and how that's um, much more reliable than paying attention to the news because the news is filtered through so much more stuff and what you should be listening to is the pulse of your community yeah yeah i think that's quite beautiful and i think that is going to end my segment um, was there something else that you wanted to touch
1: upon? No. Are we moving into the conclusion? Is that... Conclusion. Here we okay. are. Okay. Yeah, I was going yeah. to... The only thing I was going to say in the conclusion is that um, I definitely want to come back to talk more about libraries around comics specifically, because that was what I did all of my research on. Uh, um, yeah, I was
0: like, <laughs> what's happening? <laughs> well, you have to. First we talk about
1: where they come from, and then we do the follow-up episode where we're like, Oh, yeah. Here's comics. <laughs> um, but oh. there is, like, <laughs> you know, like the, the the role of libraries in the 50s um, during the anti-comics movement is really interesting and how that's since sort of changed um, uh, with uh, the Young Adult Library Service Association support of, like, graphic novels and, like, I don't know. There's just a lot of, like, super interesting stuff there. So we will definitely come back to this, I assume. <laughs> if you-
0: <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. I feel like, so, like, comics, I, I mean, I guess I have, like, a little thing about how, you know, it was recently reported that, uh, graphic novel sales in 2019 rose by 16.1%, which is gigantic. Yes. And, you, and, uh... You know, the libraries are responding to this, they know
1: how popular graphic novels are, right? Yeah. And they're really supporting but, And that, not only do so. they know, but they have a lot to do with the reason why, honestly. Um, especially for young adult books. Yelsa rules. That's awesome.
0: So, I have no idea. Yeah. I can't wait to hear <laughs> what that is in the, the follow-up episode. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, so now, as a new segment that, because our episodes aren't long enough... So I proposed to Remus a, a sort of a temporary new segment to drawing a dialogue. Um, and I wanted to extend my thanks for um, giving me this space. And so it's going to come, this new segment is going to come after the conclusion of our main episode topic and before letters to the editor. Um, and this new segment is called schools are the community.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, so it's going to be about Providence public schools. Yeah. Um, I live in Providence which is the capital of Rhode Island, Mm -hmm. and uh, Remus used to live here. The public school system here has been going through an upheaval. Mm -hmm. So in this first appearance of this segment, I kind of wanted to just give a simple timeline of what's been happening Okay. So with that, uh, here's our new segment titled Schools Are the Community. So in May 2019, Johns Hopkins Institute for Education Policy led a review of the Providence Public School District, or PPSD. They were invited by the Rhode Island Department of Education Commissioner Angelica infant Green, with the support of the Governor Gina Raimondo and Mayor Jorge Alorza. They were invited to, uh, Johns Hopkins was invited to do their review because the RICAS scores, RICAST meaning the Rhode Island Comprehensive S- Assessment System, they are tests in English and math for students grades three to eight. The latest test scores at the mm. time of the Johns Hopkins review, which is from 2018, showed 90% of students n- be not being proficient in math and 86% are not proficient in English language arts, meaning okay. about 90% of students are all performing below grade level. So this is, wow. um, yeah, it's very, it's very uh, shocking. But also, so in June 2019, the Johns Hopkins Institute of Education Policy published this review of the Province Public School District, and based on their direct observations and interviews with the schools, their report finds that, one, the great majority of students are not learning on or even near grade level. Two, with rare exception, teachers are demoralized and feel unsupported. Three, Most parents feel shut out of the children's education. Four, principals find it very difficult to demonstrate leadership. And five, many school buildings are deteriorating across the city, and some are even dangerous to students' and teachers' well-being. Okay? And I'm going to link this review that came out in June 2019. So in June and July 2019, there were multiple town halls throughout Providence conducted by the commissioner Miss Angelica in green to give community members a chance to talk about this report. I personally was able to mm-hmm. attend one of these in July. I heard stories from the teachers union, from parents and students and from teachers. Okay. The main takeaway that I took from the town hall is that commissioner Miss Angelica in green is dedicated to structural changes From administration, to teachers, to students, to families, to the community, that a complete overhaul of Providence Public Schools needs to take place. Okay? Mm -hmm. She was, like, always talking about how dedicated she is to there isn't a little thing that needs to change. The entire system needs to change. Okay.
1: Mm, Okay.
0: So, now, in October 2019, the Boston Globe reported, four months after a devastating report outlined... Um, widespread dysfunction and subpar student performance throughout Providence schools, the education commissioner announced Tuesday the state will take control of the district for at least five years beginning November 1st. So a state takeover of the public school system essentially means that the commissioner will have sw- sweeping authority over budgetary and personnel decisions for Rhode Island's largest school system. So that means the state is taking away the power from local entities, right? It's no longer going to be a providence-based control, right? It is now in the state's control.
1: Mm.
0: Which doesn't seem as much of a big deal in a small state like us, but it is it's a big deal. But state state takeovers of of public schools yeah. is a really really big deal because um historically yeah. they have gone very badly. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> oh. So you see why I am here trying to report a little bit of what's been happening yeah. in um, my city. So the mayor has publicly supported the state takeover, but he's advocated for a clear timeline of what the city would be able to take back out of the district and asked for community members to have a seat at the table when it comes to crafting the turnaround plan. So that takes us today, January 2020, um, when I am joining the community advisory board or cab, uh, for a local middle school that is performing at the lowest 5% of these tests. And I'm going to link to what the community advisory board's website on the Providence public schools. So essentially what the community advisory board is, um, here's a quote from the guidebook. The Providence public school district believes that community and family engagement in school improvement is critical. The Rhode Island Department of Education requires that schools included in the improvement process undertake a needs assessment, perform a root cause analysis, and form a community advisory board for the purpose of developing a school improvement plan. The school district views the the formation of cabs as an opportunity to create more meaningful collaboration with families and community to improve our schools and is a key part of our broader strategy to ensure equity and the voice for our students and our communities. So mm. I'll go into my role as a cab member in the next episode. So this is sort of wrapping up uh, the timeline of what's been happening. Um, And I admit, as a new Mm -hmm. member of a CAB, my first task is actually kind of to understand exactly what that role is. Right. Um, But I wanted to bring our listeners in with me because a huge, huge overwhelming issue of what's happening is that the information and bureaucracy of the system is opaque, right? I just use a lot of names, a lot of (laughs) acronyms. It's it's very... (laughs) that this like, it's, it's, it's difficult to help people understand, but it's really scary. Right. Because mm-hmm. it can go bad.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, so right. what I wanted to do um, is just to help this process become a little bit more transparent um, because that is the goal and to get community involved in public schools um, for the service of making the education of our kids, the best it can be. And so uh, for future episodes of um, this segment, I'm going to be talking about what's happening inside the schools, what cabs are trying to do, and I'm hoping to track the progress of the specific middle school that I'm going to be working with. So thank yeah. you so much for listening. This has been our new segment, uh, Schools are the Community.
1: <laughs> Thanks, us. <Remus. laughs> <laughs> no, thank you. I really, I did, like, I really wanted to follow along with this because it's very important. Um, and I... Uh, like Kathy said, I did used to live in Providence, and I do still feel very attached to Providence and want to know what's happening there. So,
0: Yeah, and my I got my start working with these kids, right? I got my start teaching with yeah. uh, Providence public school system students. I worked after school for six years in different nonprofits around the city. I still work in different nonprofits and do library visits and all mm. sorts of stuff. And so I have experienced what is happening Um, In a minimal way. So I'm really happy. Mm -hmm. Part of the requirement of the community advisory boards. Is that they can't be financially tied. To the province public school system. So you can't Mm -hmm. be a current teacher. And so I really felt like Mm. this was a. um, A great place for me. As someone who. Is a teacher and really cares about the kids in our city to find a way to be involved in that in this process. So
1: if teachers can't join the cabs, how when do they? do they is there like gonna be meetings or something where they can also talk
0: yeah so i'll get into this a little bit more okay. next time um but i'm okay. i'm yeah. as a community advisory board i'm actually working directly with the principal and the vice principal oh, and i'm actually invited okay. to go to the middle school like i was like when can i come by and they were like anytime like they're they're it's really doors okay. open they really want to be a part of this i feel like uh the the energy that i've had in the town halls and the meetings i've been to so far have been people want to change this system they want to help kids be better we're all in it together yeah Um, yeah yeah it feels so far it's felt really good but still provident spirit i feel like (laughs) yeah it is so i'm happy to be a part of it the commissioner of the state hasn't um I don't think she's published her plan yet, but again, this is all stuff I'm going to continue to do research, and I'll continue to update our listeners.
1: Awesome. Um, thank, thank, you thank you so, you so much. much. Okay. So? So,
0: now it's time for our segment, Letters to the Editor, a regular segment where we revisit past topics and add new research, and sometimes we actually read email you've sent us. You can send us letters at drawingadialog@gmail.com. at gmail.com. Yeah. Do we have an email? We have an email. We have an email.
1: Do you want to tell us about the email?
0: This is. <laughs> yeah, it has a word that is maybe in a pro pro, so. <laughs> oh. So I'm not sure.
1: Okay, but it is a funny joke <laughs> on, like, the white cube style, so I feel. <laughs> oh,
0: you, do you want to? No, I don't I didn't know that. You can you can say it. Do, are you looking at the Yeah, know, right I'm looking now? at the.
1: Okay. Um so a listener sent us a um text from a group of British art critics called the White Pube, which is a pun on the white cube style of art museums um that was extremely popular mm. uh in architecture during like the modernist period. It's it, it's kind of what it sounds like. Big white blank wall, big white cube. Mm. So funny joke. Um but this um this critique is called Why Museums Are Bad Vibes. And it's like a fun I'm like reading through it now. I just saw this email so now I'm reading through it. Um did you read the the actual critique, Kathy? No. So it's a critique of museums, so relevant to our museum episode. About, I mean, this is, okay, sorry, I'm, like, skimming this, so this is going to be a gloss, but it seems like a very useful critique that addresses a lot of stuff that I have also, I think, that we talked about on the episode, but also that I have just done a lot, like, research on and am involved in, mm-hmm. and echoes a lot of, like, new museology critique. So, um, cool. and it's written in sort of a fun zine-y vibe, and... Cool. uh there's a song attached that i'm not gonna play but it seems that there's a song uh, that says white museums are bad vibes it might be a song a or podcast. a podcast yeah who knows anyway so we will link it
0: yes we will link that thank you for sending it to us yes
1: i have cool. i actually also have something that i wanted to shout out oh yeah go for it so yesterday um my roommate and i attended the first teach-in and a series of teach-ins that is being led in Gainesville by the Dream Defenders, which is a Florida group, um, activist group that is sort of dedicated to um, issues of racial inequ- and ethnic ine- inequality and um, justice. Mm. They're a very cool group. There's a, I think 10 or 20 of them, um, throughout Florida. And this first teach-in was about the school-to-prison pipeline. um, so we had folks from I walk there we had folks from the community um who were like um I, like i i had a uh, there was a woman who talked about her experiences she's on the school board she just got elected and like um it was just really nice it was like a really good um you know like we had some discussion they had some they gave us information um and they are doing another teach in um the next one is going to be on mass incarceration and they're sort of leading up to a town ta- like a sort of town hall style thing with, um, the folks that are currently running f- to be state attorney. Um, because it's election season, mm. election season is upon us. Yes, um, it is. so yeah. it's good to know not just, you know, the president, but also your local positions, right? State attorney is a really important position. Absolutely. State attorney decides like what cases Florida, um, we talked about Florida has um oh darn what's it called? My notes are not next to me. A system direct file. Florida is one of a few states that has direct file, which essentially means that they can um directly put kids into the adult um system. Um and is leads the nation uh in incarcerating children as adults. So um it was a good so it's you know look into who's running for what and see what you can do that kind of stuff
0: thanks for sharing remus yeah so i want to say thank you to downtown boys for their song wave of history it's off their album full communism you can get it off their band camp uh head on over to drawingadialogue.com uh, to view citation for this podcast um oh yes you can <laughs>
1: sorry i just like Say a couple of things
0: and then I just toss it to you no, without any indication I'm tossing it.
1: Normally I'm good at that. I'm just very out of it today. Um, so you can email us if you want to send us an email like um, the nice person who did today. Um, you can email us at dialogue at gmail.com. Um, you can – did you say uh, – did you talk about comic art, Ed, yet? No. It's always
0: fun when you do it. Okay. So
1: <laughs> – while you're at drawingadialogue.com, you'll notice that it is hosted on Comic Art Ed, which is Kathy's very good uh, comic arts education Thank website you. that you should also take a look at and use. It's a very good resource, especially for Thank educators. You. Um, Thank you. you can follow us on Twitter at draw a dialogue. You can follow me at uh E-H-E-T-J-A-E-Hecha. I need to change that handle soon, but I'm so reluctant. <laughs> <laughs> what
0: you can just do you can still own the handle and just make a I've done that before. But then I've, I would lose uh, all my followers. Deleted it. Huh?
1: I would lose all my followers.
0: No 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 you can rename the handle but then make a n- new Really quickly make a new Twitter account with that handle name.
1: Oh, oh, yeah, that's yeah clever. Yeah,
0: so, yeah if what- you're
1: wait- if you're worried someone else might take it. No, I don't care if someone takes it. I just it. I we have done nearly thirty episodes of me being like, this is my Twitter. So if I change now that I'm going, like it, it,
0: it's annoying. Yeah, but that's what I'm saying is if you change it and then just do just pin a tweet that's like. My new Twitter handle is over here. Yeah. They can like it'll it'll work out. That's clever. <laughs> that's very clever. Thank you. <laughs> um, I've done it many times. <laughs> um, and then uh, you can follow me at Kathy G John C A T H Y G J O H N, um, and you can also that's on Twitter and on Instagram. And you can uh, go to my portfolio website C A T H uh, Y G J O H N dot net. Kathy G John dot net. My portfolio uh, website is also e so,
1: h e t j a. It's just what is it? I'm fixing that. Also, I'm <laughs> I'm in between. That's in a lot all of right. <laughs>
0: that's that's part of what it is. Yeah. Okay. Um, um, and you can also follow Comic Art Ed. Also has a Twitter at Comic Art Ed. Oh yeah. Go go follow that. It has like four hundred people. I mostly post about every couple months. I'll take a photo of some kid's art and post it it's just, you know it's a good follow <laughs> yeah um uh
1: so what are you reading remus me um i uh read so i got my copy of rosemary valera o'connell's don't go without me um which short box read a kickstarter for a little while ago um, very beautiful book. It's three short comics. Um, one of them was originally published with shortpox as a standalone, and the other two are new. Um, mm. and Rosemary is just so talented and so wonderful, and the book is so, so beautiful. Um, friend of the show. Friend, um, <laughs> friend of the I show.
0: I have seen her read um from that book. Uh, Twice now, I've been lucky enough to see her read uh, twice. Once in Brooklyn, once in Los Angeles. Very, really good story. Cried.
1: It's so good. Yeah, very moving. That's so good. Um, and then what? Yeah, what?
0: Well, I was going to go into it, but I forgot I needed to be prompted by you.
1: Yeah, I mean, you can just go into it, but normally I do ask, "What are you reading?"
0: Thank you. Um, um, I'm reading Jackson's Dilemma by Iris Murdoch, which I think I've mentioned before on the show, maybe Mm. eight or six episodes back. But basically I started reading it, and then I started reading all these book club books, because i have (laughs) part of a few book clubs. And then I'm finally back to being like, no book clubs, I'm only going to read what I want to read. So I'm back to reading this book. It's just wonderful. (laughs) It's like a mini it's like you know how like uh when you're talking to like english teachers it's always like free read for students like help students read it was like such a little um experimentation where it is so much nicer to choose what you want (laughs) to read being told to read something it is nice to choose (laughs) (laughs) yes so i'm back love it um i'm almost done don't spoil it for me and then um if you tweet at me I swear. And then um <laughs> <laughs> and then I just wanted to say this is the first time that we've been recording since the new year. Oh yeah. And so I just wanted to say I read seventy five books in twenty nineteen. My goal for twenty twenty is a hundred. Um of those seventy five, I'm guessing seventy were comic books. So I mean
1: that counts. That doesn't not ca- hello. <laughs>
0: i know totally it totally counts um and then uh um and it also doesn't count anything that i read for this It is only it's very strictly books that i started from beginning to end Mm. which a lot of the time when we're researching this show i'll just read a couple of chapters of something this is very strict um but i read 75 books i'm really proud of myself
1: that's so cool, I did not keep track of how many books I read. Um, it's fine though. I get
0: <laughs> I'm sure a lot of your books you're reading for your degree. I'm sure a lot of it is like what I was saying where it's just like a couple of chapters and not the entire book, but you're probably oh, you read no. every day. rest assured they day. do
1: assign us the entire book um Ugh, but <laughs> boo. <laughs> you know whatever it's fine. <laughs> what's what's 600 pages Um, a week um yeah cool Cool.
0: Cool. yeah i just was happy about that no that's super cool for a a bit more this year
1: i think it's cute when people keep lists i'm just bad at remembering to do it
0: oh yeah and you can read my list i have it all written down um you can find it on my instagram or my twitter at kathy g john um there it's like just like uh in my notebook i wrote down every title and the author cool and that's it that's it so Thank you for listening to Drawing a Dialogue. My name has been Kathy G. Johnson. And my
1: name still is Remus Jackson.
0: Farewell to (laughs) our intrepid volunteers. Bye. (laughs)